Yep. Welcome back to Open Up with Lockie, number 234, I think this one is. And this is with a friend of mine that I met on Clubhouse randomly, just, you know, happened to be in the same room a few of the times and got to chatting and actually struck up um, a friendship to the point where I feel like you're my sister. I know we've spoken about that <laughs> on messages, but it's like this this really interesting dynamic and depth um, that I guess has come from being super, super fucking vulnerable to both of us in some of those rooms and like connecting initially on that level without having met, without having seen each other like on a video call. So it's actually been a really cool experience for me, like a, a pretty hard opening experience too. And I'm grateful that you've made time for this. Thanks, Lockie. Yeah, it's, um, I want to say that it's wild, but it's not with the ways in which the universe works. <laughs> I think Clubhouse has been <laughs> pretty incredible because it takes away the visual. Like Instagram, people can feel threatened by how other people look or how they present themselves or what they wear or, you know, all of this stuff. And in Clubhouse, it almost just invites us to have a conversation incognito. And I think there's an aspect of feeling really safe with that. And I feel the same with you. I feel I've never opened up to a like masculine figure like this in my life. And I've never met you in person. I hadn't video called you or like known you at all. So um, that goes to show that there's a lot of authenticity and open heartedness in your character too, that you're willing to show up like that you're willing to be a safe space for people to just talk about whatever's on their heart and yeah and I don't even know how it came about but I'm so appreciative it happened because I had a massive breakthrough in that moment and I've had many breakthroughs since which was probably two months ago now I think yeah fucking hell that's gone quick <laughs> Truly, it really has yeah uh, let's start with a, a deeper question and that's, can you describe the way you view yourself, um, either as a woman or human? Yeah. How do I view myself? Shit. That is a deep question. Um, I suppose there's the, how I view, how I believe others view me and then how I really view myself and the conundrum between the two. So how others view me, I think a lot of the time in my life has been the, the strong one, the helper, the rescuer, as we've talked about in that uh, Karpman drama triangle. Um, the one that is relentlessly in pursuit of what she wants and will stop at no obstacle to go and get it. What I have thought of myself has been, um, has been up and down and all over the place my entire life and I think that's been the greatest lesson in this path is that who I believe I am in one moment is not necessarily who I am or where I'm going so I've had the lowest of low uh, in regards to self-worth like feeling like I'm not worthy of love or feeling like I'm not worthy of a intimate relationship with someone that loves me uh, mutually I've had many moments where I've felt that I dislike my body. I dislike how I've treated people or I dislike how people treat me. 
But then I've had moments um, and many of these moments since I had an awakening where I do truly believe I'm unstoppable. I do truly believe I'm here to serve people and help raise the consciousness of this planet. I do believe that I am intelligent and I have so much to offer and I really just want to communicate and connect with people that are wanting to do the same. So that's a really long-winded answer to your question. No, that's cool though. That's um, that's probably the most, that's the, that's the most different answer that I've heard so far. And I've probably asked that question maybe a hundred times to people. So like no one's ever come at it from the two differing perspectives, which is cool. Because <laughs> yeah. like the way you believe people perceives you ultimately impacts the way that you show up and perceive yourself, right? Yeah, yeah, yes. And I, I also feel like sometimes there's no room for me to be a failure or there's no room for me to rest because people have this perception of me that I've created around being strong, being the hero and always being the rescuer in my family and all of that kind of stuff. But I'm learning more and more that the magic that happens in my life is through authentic connection with people, being in nature, appreciating good conversation and how to actually transform the world and transform trauma into your power. I love that. Just let me write that down transform trauma into your power so if i'm looking down i'm not ignoring you i'm writing notes it's all right do you want to give um give us all context around or an insight into what your upbringing was like and you spoke into being the rescuer in your family as well be interesting to hear about that especially i guess considering how people perceive you at the moment like with that still being relevant Yeah, so for context, uh, in my career, I'm a life coach. So life coach transitioning to entrepreneur, but will always be a life coach at heart because coaching is is a life force for me. It's just, it brings me so much joy to watch people transform. But ultimately growing up, um, I was the first born child. I came from a working class family in New Zealand and both my parents were extremely hard workers like work ethic and my family trumped everything it was like you never call in sick you never show up late you are always early you are always you're always basically available to whoever you work for and you do your best and that's what I grew up with so then I kind of threw myself and my brother as well we threw ourselves into sports We threw ourselves into achieving, we threw ourselves into perfectionism, which I didn't know at the time. My dad was extremely hard on himself. So he was the most critical person of himself. And then obviously that translates to others too, right? And I watched him and I really looked at him like a role model. And so I would just smash golf balls from daylight till dark from the age of like 13 to 17. And I'd play 36 holes of golf every weekend. And I would swim like kilometers and kilometers every week and I would play netball and I would shoot hoops until it was dark and I would study and I would do my creative projects and I was just obsessed with being the best and doing well because I thought that that's what I needed to do in order to be loved or in order for my dad to see me because dad was always 
doing projects. He was always like renovating houses or building houses or getting ahead, right? And my mum, she also worked really hard and she raised us basically on her own because my dad worked shift work. And I don't really, I suppose now I don't really like talking about them in a bad light because my upbringing is my power now, whereas it used to be, oh, I'm the victim of my upbringing and this all sucks and I wish that this was different. But I suppose the dynamic that I saw within my family, if we are referring to the Cartman Triangle, so for anyone listening, if you want to pull that up on Google, there's the persecutor, the rescuer and the victim. And growing up, I think my dad always felt like a bit of a victim to his circumstances with his work. Like he felt he was kind of trapped in that kind of work. He was in um, oil and gas and it's good money, right? So sometimes you can feel like you're stuck in that. And my mum felt like she was probably a little bit of a victim too because she worked really hard and she raised us kids and she had no space or time for herself. So I saw them both deeply miserable, deeply anxious, deeply unhappy, very agitated. There was a lot of like arguing and irritability in our home. And so what did I want to do as a child? Well, I wanted to rescue them from their pain. I wanted us to be happy. I wanted us to be a family. I wanted us to be at peace with one another. And I adopted that mentality in the drama triangle of being that rescuer. And that gave my parents the opportunity to either be the victim or the persecutor. And so my dad adopted the persecutor most of the time and my mum adopted the victim. Now that's quite a okay basing it off the triangle lens, but my upbringing for the most part was quite stressful. I think I felt a lot of pressure and I would look at my friends and I'd look at my peers and I would wonder if like how they were having so much fun, how they were so present, how they were so carefree, how they didn't worry about things. And I just felt like I was in a constant worry of either not achieving, um, not looking a certain way, not being a certain way, right? My mum's perception of, my mum's perception of how you become a successful woman or how you become a worthy woman, more to the point, is you wear makeup, you go on, eternal diets to lose weight to look a certain way for men um, you're polite and you you know you don't speak your mind and you don't tell the truth if it's going to hurt someone so you just you just say what you think people need to hear and it's not that she explicitly ever said any of these things but this is what was implied and so I felt really torn between who I knew I was or you know the authenticity that kept kind of shining through around wanting to speak the truth versus seeing all my friends also wanting to lose weight going on diets doing all these things so I wore makeup at a young age I got highlights at a young age like I got put on a diet at a really young age and all of that just reinforced the less than feeling that I had that like I wasn't good enough or that like I wasn't pretty enough or thin enough or wasn't measuring up. So that's been a real beautiful realization now to really own that and understand that and help people kind of overcome that too. Cause I've really worked through that part of me. It's massive. When you, you speak about being this, this person or this kid who needed to, to be relentless and obviously uh, like you're still perceived by some to be that person now, 
needed to be relentless in trying to be the best at whatever it was that you were doing to feel like you had some some love or appreciation from your dad were you ever able to celebrate yourself like knowing that your dad was hypercritical were you ever able to celebrate how well you'd done no <laughs> and I'm just learning how to do that now because I feel like the needle always kept getting shifted and I remember when I was in a bunker like a sand bunker in a tournament on the 12th hole in my home golf course and there were all these people around me watching and there were some you know scratch golfers plus two golfers some of these women were incredible and I remember being in this bunker and I remember it taking me like seven or eight tries to get out like I just I melted I just totally melted and I think in that moment now reflecting back I realized how that pursuit was just so thankless and it made me resent golf right it was never anything to do with golf it was you know very much underlying from golf but it really made me resent that the more you try and the harder you go the harder it is Whereas the more you surrender and the more you allow and the more you accept, the easier it gets. So I feel like we damn our own situations by trying so fucking hard. Well, that's that's pretty powerful. And it's that like that's actually a really good analogy being in that bunker and <laughs> the harder you try, the harder it becomes. <laughs> like like in being it's a bunker. <laughs> It truly is. It's like I don't know if there are any if there are any golfers that are actually listening, but like you've got like a sixty degree, sixty two in a bunker, and it's that perfect amount of sand and swoosh under the the ball to actually get the backspin onto the green. And it either backspins into the bunker or you bone it straight through the green. So yeah, it's like that perfect balance and you can't have that balance when you're trying too hard. Any rounds of golf I ever had, I wasn't thinking about, I must shoot this score, I must do this thing. It was like, I'm gonna relax. I'm gonna allow myself to just play the fucking game. And every time I did that, I would have a great game. So it's losing that expectation, which isn't that a metaphor for my entire life? Yes. <laughs> Where, at what point in your life, say you're, you're 21, you're this intern, you're firing, firing middle-aged men. Where does it go to from there for you to get to a point where you're like, aha moment, all this has gone on in my life. It's time for me to start working through it. Oh my gosh, there's so much that happened from that 21-year-old version of myself that was firing all those middle-aged men offshore. Um, for people listening, for context, I used to work in um, oil and gas and I was an HR intern for a company and the, C, uh, the HR manager allocated me a role to fire a bunch of, a bunch of guys that were laid off and... I had to ring them on the phone and literally tell them. And if they didn't answer, I had to leave them a voicemail. So some of these guys had done, you know, 20 years of service and they were getting laid off and they had the 21 year old intern do the layoff. So that was pretty brutal. From there, I moved on to 
So my self-worth was low there because I felt like I couldn't do anything right. And that had translated through my whole life, right? It was a big theme. Then I moved on to Coca-Cola and I got a scholarship to move to the US from Coca-Cola. Um, not from Coca-Cola, from my university. So then I moved to the US and I worked at Pinterest and Dropbox in San Francisco. And then I moved to London with Dropbox and I worked there for a bit. Then I moved to Revolut, which is a challenger bank in the UK. And I basically did all of HR operations and onboarding and everything you can imagine in that company because we were like a 40 person startup. I think now it's like thousands of people and it's worth billions. But at the time it was very low. And what I learned was like, I kept relentlessly hunting and pursuing greatness, what I thought was greatness. And every time I would just have no self-worth, I would want to escape. So I'd go out drinking. I felt like the only attribute or quality I had was my ability to converse with people and make people laugh and be really personable and be the helper, right? Which is what I did in my childhood. So I'd always try and help my friends, help my coworkers, like rescue everyone from you know the bad guys all the bad guys there and I had a massive awakening when I kind of got myself into a situation with an older guy and I go back and forth between whether it was abusive or whether I asked for it or whether I because of my relentless pursuit for success I put myself in that situation and really like it wasn't his fault that things got out of hand and it went further than it should have but what I realized from that is that is the, the greatest gift that I was ever given because that was the catalyst. That was the straw that broke the camel's back that I can't operate like this anymore. Like I can't just totally be in pursuit of these shiny things um, at the expense of myself. So that's when everything changed. And that's when I realized I'm on this journey and it's hard, but it's just digging up all the shit from my past and just working through it and turning it into power. What was the first um, decision you made or the empowering action you took to start that process? Because for a lot of people, that that first step is the hardest because you're leaving this comfort bubble, this comfort zone, even if it's toxic or destructive, that's still where you're most comfortable, that's still where you perceive there to be little to no threat. And stepping outside of that into something new, being knowing you're going to dig up <laughs> the shit that you've been through in your life and, you know, have to challenge yourself on your behavior. What was that first action step for you? So ironically, I'm doing a five day free challenge that starts next week and it's to quit your job with ease. I quit my job with a lot of dis-ease, I'll tell you that. And what I will also say is there was not one element of comfort involved in staying. And that's what actually got me to leave. It was like the CEO of the company that I was working at was just relentless in his ability to be cutthroat and to just be cruel. And I was like, what are you doing, Brooke? This is going against every ounce of value that you have in yourself. And I think the straw that broke the camel's back was, was that. And obviously that other situation with the guy. But 
I finally surrendered and I said to myself, if you have to like pour beer in a pub, no disrespect to people that do that, but for the rest of your life, or you have to go and work for Doc and just set <laughs> set traps in the mountains, like you, you can go and do that. Like I was willing to just do anything that wasn't corporate life um, in the pursuit of like money and power. And the first step I made, I was living in London um, with two of my best friends and we were living in an apartment together. And the first step I made was one night, everyone was out and like, I don't know, we're all kind of like doing a lot of drugs and stuff at that time and partying a lot on the weekends. And I just went cold turkey on that as well. I was like, no, no more of none of that. And everyone was out and I was at home on my own at the dining table and I just started like playing around with the logo design because I am very creative and I had missed that part of myself and I just started playing around and I was like I'm gonna be a coach like I'm just gonna like I'm really good at this this is the one thing I feel like I'm good at I'm always good at helping people and giving advice so fuck it I'm gonna do that and I took that first step played with that logo and then I moved out of my room to limit costs and I moved in with, into my flatmate's room. And then I moved home to New Zealand. And then I just went hiking and it all just started to evolve from there. I did lots of writing, found Tim Ferriss, started meditating, like, you know, all of those things. And here we are, like nearly four years later. That's, um, that's a big step to leave, you know, being someone who was chasing greatness who was relentless and to be amongst those sorts of organizations in the position you were and then to leave that where where does that ability to surrender or trust come from that i can't answer that is something that was a lot higher than me um i almost felt like i got swooped up into the arms of like the universe or something and it was just like, no, nah, this isn't for you anymore. And that is like, what is so incredible is I can't describe that because it's beyond the human mind. It's just, yeah, I just went with it. It's almost like my choice, it wasn't actually my choice to take this path, you know? Cause like my choice would have been to keep pursuing moving to another startup and go with that startup and it's like I would have faced the same archetypes over and over again until I faced my shit but didn't know that at the time did I so yes I didn't choose this like there was a greater power and it really presented itself to me in those times and it scared the fuck out of me crazy dreams <laughs> nightmares like night terrors awake all night like just truly meeting myself at the depths of my psyche. I love that. Was there, was there ever a process where you had to work through the transition of identity from like corporate Brook to coach Brook? Oh my God. Yes. And I reflect back and look back at some like videos and stuff I did at the start. And I'm like, who, who is that person like just so inhumane and obsessed with what people think and assertive and just yuck no humility so yes it was a massive transition but took time what's um what's it been like obviously being super relentless and 
striving to attain greatness, there's, it's very, very easy to become hyper-masculine, especially as a woman in corporate. What's it been like pulling back from that or stepping away from like being overly masculine? That's so funny that you said that. Um, when I worked in corporate, I worked with some pretty incredible minds um, because incredible companies attract incredible minds. And some of the guys that I worked really closely with, yeah, may I add, I was never really surrounded by that many women. Um, in, the, in the last company at Dropbox, it was many women. But um, I got like in a group chat on WhatsApp and it was called The Boys. And I was the only girl in it, but it was like The Boys chat. And then they would literally like call me one of the boys. And that was like, that was when I knew something had to change because I was dressed like a woman and I still wore makeup and I still was a woman, but like everyone was just looking at me like a dude. And I was so assertive and I was just, you know, so ruthless. I was like, who the fuck is this? Um, so really stepping into that femininity, I worked with a woman in Bali called Deva, who's a Tantra coach. And that was just petrifying for me, but wow, what a journey. We worked together for nearly a year and to allow myself to be in a state of femininity, be in a state of pleasure, like allow myself joy, allow myself to be gentle, to have ease and trust and peace in my life. Something I'd never experienced since the day I was born. So yeah, it's been an absolutely beautiful transition and to really be able to feel my emotions and let them go. Um, mm. Yes. Can you, can you speak into like your relationship with pleasure pre and post Tantra? Yeah, yeah, I can. So my relationship with pleasure pre Tantra was, I would say sort of pre awakening would have been um, sex for orgasm. Um, it would have been I was very much obsessed with external pleasure. So whether that was really nice cocktails, really expensive restaurants with ceviche and um, going to lavish hotels and traveling around so much and buying really nice clothes and everything very kind of external. That was what I thought kind of pleasure was. And post-tantra, it's like, holy shit. Pleasure is... Um, it starts and ends with you. It's your connection to, to source, to nature. It's your connection to like your body, your internal system, the fact that I have a vagina, the whole concept of that, like the fact that it's not just this external thing that's part of my physical body. It's like I'm a creator as a woman, which has been a huge realization. And really realizing that pleasure is what creates the best things in the world and scarcity and fear is what has tipped everything off balance so if more of us lived from a place of pleasure and this is like tantra is not just like having orgasms being multi-orgasmic having heaps of sex it's like really allowing yourself to trust that the way that you've perceived things for so long is simply not true and knowing and believing that hey you doing 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 is not actually getting you further towards the truth which is actually what we're all after what the fuck is this why are we here 
and how do we actually love more? I love that. Um, and I guess I asked that because for a lot of us, especially before we like delve into self-pleasure from that, that tantric perspective, it's mostly um, what we perceive to be pleasure, but it's really just a coping mechanism or a way to avoid particular emotional states or feeling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for like for a lot of dudes, it's men. porn. Yeah. There you go. I was just about to say, I work with quite a few men that watch a lot of porn and have porn addictions. Um, and it's really interesting how they've chosen me as their coach. I'm a woman. I don't have a penis, but hey, we've we've got we've gone one of the boys. a very long way with it. <laughs> one of the boys. Maybe I do have a penis. Good God. I don't. No disrespect to anyone else out there. <laughs> yeah, let's not even go down that road. Um, yeah, sorry, what was the question? Um, I think we're just talking about guys using porn. <laughs> rabbit hole. <laughs> Total rabbit hole. Um, yeah, okay, let's, okay, so using porn, let's actually speak into like addiction, right, and escapism, because that's what it is. It doesn't matter if it's porn or food or collecting fucking porcelain dolls, like whatever your weird obsession is, like everyone has one and it can be, you know, it can spiral into addiction. My favorite work around addiction is Garba Mate. I don't know if you've heard of him, but yeah. he wrote the book Scattered Minds in the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And he talks a lot about the correlation between ADD and addiction, um, ADHD and addiction, and not being properly emotionally nurtured by the, the mother or the father growing up, you know, and most folks that have a porn addiction or have an eating disorder or hit the bottle too much or whatever it may be, you'll probably find within your family, and if you look at both of your parents, I've got some form of addiction. Could be an addiction to cleaning, could be an addiction to smoking, could be an addiction to scrolling on social media. Like there will be something that they're addicted to, which is kind of being passed down to you. And some of them are socially acceptable and some of them aren't. And that's what Garba Mate speaks into a lot, which I, is why I just fucking love him. He's a physician in the east side of Vancouver, which is where a lot of the homeless folks are, where, you know, they're shooting up all over the place. And what he said is he's felt most at home in those areas because what's the difference between him and a heroin addict living on the street? Well, his addiction is collecting records of Mozart and working as a doctor, delivering babies and being a hero in ED. And that person's addiction is shooting up heroin, which is costing them a lot of money and getting them into a lot of trouble and they're winding up homeless. But when you strip that away and when they were speaking human to human in you know, a consultation, he said, I feel seen and heard and understood by these people because I am them. And his mother had to give him up when he was six weeks old because the Holocaust was happening and Hungary was invaded by the Nazis. And that was quite literally a situation that was beyond his control, but he wasn't able to get the appropriate emotional nurturing, which formed these addictions, which in turn, his children became addicted and yeah, so there's a real long story and I could go on about it forever, but ultimately it's not the porn that is your problem. You've really got to dig a lot deeper than that. Yeah, it's massive. I think 
No, not I think. Porn, porn for me has been one that's been to avoid boredom or stillness because beneath boredom and stillness for me was the feeling of not being worthy. Yeah. So, like, same for scrolling on the phone or working, same. like, working Drinking, too much. working, fucking talking too much to everyone and being important. Well, um, what, seeing as we, we spoke into that, the work by Gabba Mate, what are some of the ones that come up for you uh, that you've had to work through or that have taken, taken the most time to, to process and shift? still working through them like definitely haven't overcome them yet but biggest one is my work is my worth that's been huge so I've spent most of my life sacrificing deep and meaningful relationships in one place um, because of my pursuit for um, power it's huge I say power because it's like that next job is a promise of self-worth. That next salary is a promise of self-worth. That next achievement is a promise of being worthy. How do you how do you then pull that back so that you make it a, a goal that's attainable so that you can celebrate it and then from there look forward instead of always shifting that goalpost? It's ironic because when COVID hit, um, I think like in moments of strife or in moments of uncertainty, we are presented with the reality of how we feel about things. And when I was in my apartment in Melbourne and it was very obvious on the news that like everyone's borders were closing and like we didn't really know what this was. My first instinct was like, I have to go home. Like I have to go and be with my family. Yet when everything's good and borders are open, and flights can go in and out like I am not near my family I'm on the other side of the world or I'm traveling or I'm doing everything that is not what's truly on my heart and what's really important to me so COVID taught me that um and now I'm back in Melbourne because I wanted to tie up loose ends here but I ultimately see myself close to my family back in New Zealand I don't see myself living in my hometown but I see myself living in nature in New Zealand where the people I love are and yeah despite all the pain and suffering that we kind of go through as humans with our families and with all the dynamics and all the shame and blame and whatever it is that we experience the reason that it's so painful is because there's so much love there oh, I love that it's so beautiful and thank you for being emotional on this it takes a lot of courage. Can't help it. You pull it out of me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you've mentioned a few times an awakening. What What is yes. that? What happened? Have you had an awakening? I don't know if I have or not. Okay. You, you haven't then, I don't think. Because <laughs> you'd know if you had. It is like the ground moves beneath you and nothing is real anymore and it might have been the fact that I basically overdosed on MD when I was in London and lost my head I took like I dropped a quarter of a gram at once um totally by mistake but 
probably four or five months later, like that's when I had my awakening. It's like everything changed from there. So anyone that's a doctor or anyone that doesn't have kind of like an esoteric view on things would be like, something fucking went wacky in her brain and that's why she is the way she is now. But what I can say is um, the awakening was just something, like I said, that I just couldn't describe. It was a real big shift in perspective and values. I'd be awake all night, kind of researching things. The first book that I came across was The Alchemist that happened to be on my, my flatmate's nightstand. And I read it and I was like, whoa, this is, you know, this is insane. And then I came across The Hero's Journey by Joseph Campbell. And I was like, we're all heroes on this crazy journey of like going into the darkness, going into the depths of ourselves and then coming out with the gold, being like, holy shit. So all these synchronicities occurred and, you know, I started seeing all these reoccurring numbers and people started to just feel really distant from me like I didn't understand them or what they were motivated by anymore the people that I was around and so I think that was the awakening that was the radical shift that like can't live in this lie anymore can't pretend that these friends are actually friends because we just get fucked up together and we all just look really cool and go to Ibiza on holiday like I don't want to live like that anymore and it was my pursuit to look a certain way because then I thought oh I'll be worthy then you know I'm hanging out with these people and I got this job like I'm fucking killing it no I love that um before we start speaking into what it is that you do now who you help and what you offer how knowing that you've you've historically been the rescuer how have you made coaching and helping people like a, a more healthy pursuit rather than coming from that perspective of the rescuer <laughs> such a good question um I've helped so many people but I've also probably over helped to the point where people become codependent on me um and then I'll be like oh this client is so clingy they can't make any fucking decisions for themselves it's like oh Brooke I wonder why um so it's all been a massive learning curve and I think everyone gets really obsessed with oh I need to go and get like a quality quality uh, qualification and I need to go and get you know I need to go do this like NLP and I need to go and do this qualification and this coaching academy and this certification and you have to learn about yourself and your own limits and your own helper tendencies or victim tendencies or whatever they are in order to actually be able to help people like a certification doesn't give you shit right I went to uni and I got a degree and like does that actually help me with anything? No, because it's recycled information. It didn't come from me. It didn't come from the core. It didn't come from experience happened, consequence happened, lesson learned, wisdom gained, you know? And I think that's the only way in which people can genuinely become guides. I want to call it like a guide. You're kind of guiding someone in the right direction. So my... My absolute number one value now since doing so much coaching on myself and with others and having a lot of therapy is I am not your guru. And I know Tony Robbins has a Netflix special called that. I'm not your guru, but it's true. Like if you're an admiration of someone and Instagram's a terrible platform for that and the people that are parading around on that, you know, 
I am the guru um, is just kind of reinforcing that victim rescuer dynamic. But if you are really in awe of someone and want to be like them, then you've got a problem with your acceptance of self and kind of looking within, right? So I help people look within. I help them dig really deep into themselves. Like there's no surface level stuff with me. I love that no surface level stuff. Help people look within. All right. Okay, so last one, boundaries. What, uh, knowing that you're, what you've been through, what you're doing now, what are some of the boundaries that you've put in place? And it doesn't have to be what we've spoken about personally, but what are some of the boundaries you've put in place as a coach to look after yourself um, as well as make sure that you're attracting the people who you align with best? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I don't know if this is really a boundary, but what I've found has been so healing for both myself and for clients and potential clients is my vulnerability. So really just being able to show up as authentic as I am in that moment really invites other people to show up as authentic as they are. And then that's where we get that depth, right? There's no surface level because if I'm showing up as my raw vulnerable self, and it's not like I'm, you know, crying on the phone to all my clients, but I will certainly share stories that are on my heart and things that I know will be able to help them. And that invites them to go just as deep, if not deeper, because, you know, like attracts like. We, we meet people where they're at. And a big boundary uh, that I set majority was with my family. So not being the helper anymore. One of the prime examples was my mum had a bit of a narrative around how she sucks at technology and that Brooke is really intelligent and really smart and has worked in tech, therefore can come and save me from my technology woes. And one day um, I was working on a coach about this, right? And so this was almost like me putting my homework into practice. And my mum kind of showed up as like the, hey, can you help me? And I was like, of course, I can help you. What, what do you want me to do? And she gave me the tech thing that will explain the tech thing that she wanted me to do. And I said, awesome, I'm going to show you how to do it, but I'm not going to do it for you. So I'm going to actually teach you how to do it. So it's like the whole teacher man to fish concept, right? Like yeah. I was just getting all of her meals and burning myself out. Whereas if I taught her how to fish and gave her a rod, she could feed herself. And she reacted in that moment like I could see her in a child like really afraid and really like don't leave me like you've always helped me with this stuff you know and that was a really solid boundary I set that like hey I don't need to be the one always swooping in and saving and I was put in that situation many times and I also put myself in that situation I no longer want to do that anymore and that is obviously layered so layer after layer it strips back and the same applies with clients, you know, someone messages me panicking on a weekend. It's like, well, of course, if they're panicking, I'm going to listen, but I'm not going to drop tools and, you know, be at their beck and call. I'm going to literally give them a small nugget so they can go away and take responsibility for whatever's happening, but still feel supported. So not needing to be the hero, be the one that has all the answers 
because really you are just the guide. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's a real good boundary for coaching because you can get caught up in, especially if you have low self-worth, get caught up in providing way too much or feeling like you need to be the savior for, for self-worth or validation. So like, that's a really, that's a really good boundary. Um, Let's dive into. My coach said that he literally said like, um, don't buy into the story. So everyone's got a story, right? Don't buy into the story. And you know this. Yeah. You know this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that's like, it's helpful to have that, that part of you that says, okay, no, like you have to take responsibility. You can't just lean on me any, anytime times get tough (laughs) because otherwise we're just creating a level of codependence and just becoming that rescuer again. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So who do you help probably wrap up in about five minutes, but so who do you help and how do you help them? So I help both men and women, but predominantly more women. And I help them build inner confidence from the inside out. So the biggest thing for me is identifying your relationship patterns and how they play out, specifically to that triangle, really. How you're being the victim, how you're being the rescuer. And to stop people-pleasing. I attract a lot of women and men that are so fearful of what other people think. They live in massive overwhelm. They live in massive inaction because of the overwhelm and the need to be perfect. And when they're not taking action, their confidence just goes downhill because they're like, I'm not actually proving to myself or anyone that I can do anything or that I'm worth anything. And it's reinforcing that belief that they suck and that they're not good at anything and that they're a waste of space or that no one's going to love them or no one's going to employ them or whatever you know narrative they've created. Specifically in the Myers-Briggs scale, ENFPs and INFPs, basically any of the IN and ENFs because they're the ones that are the big picture thinkers, the big dreamers, the ones with very, very large emotions that they don't know how to understand or fathom and also a really deep heart and sensitivity. And I think what's really important about those people in particular, I'm not putting you in a box, but if you do score in Myers-Briggs in that personality, then like I'm an expert in you basically. And what it says is your pain and the deep pain that you've had in the past and the pain that you have suffered with is actually your power because when you decide to do the work, to show up, to commit, to stop making excuses and living behind the scenes of your life, you can then go out and actually help people with that. You can be a guide too. And what I find is a lot of people don't realize that they're actually here to be that guide because they're so masked by all their pain and they're not willing to actually work through that. I love that. And how for someone who's sitting on the fence listening to that, who knows their that ideal client who knows that based on what you've said you're someone who can help them make a transition or create that shift for that person who's on the fence what would you say i would any any coach would probably say this but i would ask the question of okay so what is the cost of staying where you are right and i think you've probably said that many times to potential clients or people that are like, oh, I just 
don't know if I can afford it or now's just not the right time and we've got a lot of financial pressure and I'm just I'm so overwhelmed and I can't couldn't fathom quitting my job it's like cool so what's the cost of staying where you are because as you guys heard Lockie and I speak about with my work situation like it got so dire for me that I didn't have an option but to leave I was going to go set possum traps in the bush if I had to and work in a pub before I would go do that again so how long are you going to allow it to keep getting that dire and also like what could possibly like what could actually happen like could you actually visualize a pretty great life for yourself and I think a lot of people block themselves from visualizing something that could be better because then that means they might have to change so you've got to ask yourself like what's the opportunity cost of staying stuck because there's a cost for everything there's a cost for being a fucking coach there's a cost for having your own business there's a cost for being a parent like everything in life um action reaction cost right but I think if you're pondering or you're wanting to quit your job and you're wanting to actually move out of the phase that you're in you know the fear of what other people think the people pleasing the need to be perfect the overwhelm then it's pretty obvious i love that what are you most grateful for right now this conversation presence being here (laughs) okay tim ferris tim ferris billboard question to wrap up uh, what would right. that message on that billboard be? I love that. I've got that book, Tribe of Mentors. <laughs> um, that is the book, eh? That's got the Tribe of... Is it Tribe of Mentors? I think he does that. Titans or... Oh, a tool of Titans. One yeah. of them. Yeah, he does. He's basically got the billboard question in that book. Um, get present, deal with your shit. That's, that I feel like that's so you too. <laughs> I was expecting some like Oprah quote. <laughs> yeah, just like listen to your heart and go and meditate. I'm all about that too. But I'm like, get present and just deal with your shit. You can meditate and actually do all of these things once you actually get present and go, God, I've got all this shit here that I need to work through. <laughs> all right. I just want to honor you for first of all taking time but most most importantly for being so open with me so vulnerable uh, so so vulnerable um and giving yourself permission to show up that way like i love i love the way that you show up i love our interactions and i'm pretty bloody grateful you've gone from where you were you've gone from that corporate brook in that dire situation and uh, turned a negative into a positive and now you're helping people in this space while like I've gone from still... a boy to a girl yay <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much thanks so much for having me Lockie. really appreciate it